of a person who's a servant leader. And uh, I want to uh, try to convince you, and I've been trying all year to convince you, that when God calls us, he calls us to be servant leaders. And uh, some of us, you know, shy away from the servant part, and some of us shy away from the leadership part. But if God could have his way, I believe that God would have all of us be servant leaders. And uh, both of those components are a part of the way Jesus came and served us. And so as we've studied Moses as an example or a mentor of a servant leader, uh, we've bounced on the, the Ten Commandments, right? It's the, through Moses that the Ten Commandments have come to us uh, in the Old Testament. And the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> really, um, they, they come to us through Moses, but they've been kind of the uh, foundation of our whole sense of right and wrong in Western civilization. I mean, it's where we get our idea of what's right and what's wrong. Ever since Western civilization came to be, uh, it's really been the Ten Commandments that have been a foundation. The Ten Commandments are kind of like a revelation of the character of God. Um, God's character is perfect. It's holy. And uh, he's revealed in these Ten uh, Commandments, uh, kind of the skeleton, if you will, of his ideas of what's right and wrong. Uh, perfection, and they, they become this foundation for us. And so I thought it was important for us to take a week off of Moses and, um, and just ask this question because it creates a lot of uh, uh, opinion and a lot of people have different ideas and a lot of confusion, actually. Uh, how does a New Testament believer relate to the Old Testament laws of Moses? How does a New Testament believer relate to the Old Testament laws of Moses. Now, you know our Bible is divided into two testaments, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or the Old Deal and the New Testament or the New Covenant or the New Deal. And uh, a lot of times people refer to the older part of the Bible as the law and refer to the newer part of the Bible as the gospel, the law and the gospel. Um, and so uh, I wanted to just take a little bit of time this morning to invite you to think with me because the scriptures have a lot to say about this as to how it is that a New Testament believer relates uh, to the Old Testament law or to the law and the gospel at the same time. Uh, because Christians often start out with a gospel and they hear this good news that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and they can be forgiven and they put their trust in Jesus and uh, it's really exciting, and, and their lives begin to change, but then they fall back living by the law. They fall back onto the kind of notion that everything's right or wrong, and that my relationship with God is dependent on me being right and not wrong, and, and my way of relating to other people becomes one of law rather than grace, rather than gospel. And instead of the gospel kind of taking root in me and changing me from the inside out, um, I try to still live from the outside in. And so scripture has a lot to say. Some, some people take these two uh, kind of uh, opposites, if you will, opposite ideas of law and grace, and sort of polarize. And they say, well, you know what? Everything's of grace. And it really doesn't matter. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. In fact, there's a pretty big controversy going on right now of people arguing with each other of, of, of what to do with the Old Testament kind of thing uh, in the church at large. And uh, other people say, no, you know what? It's all about the law, and it's all about being good. And uh, I would guarantee you that if you were willing to go out and get in a conversation, a spiritual conversation with people, and uh, just ask them, you know, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? Most people will say yes. And if you ask them why, they'll say, because I'm a good person. I guarantee 90% of the people you talk to will say some version of because I'm a good person, because I'm living by the law in their minds. And uh, how tragic that is, as I think we'll see. And so, um, you know, um, Jesus, when he was here in Matthew chapter 5, said, don't think that I came to get rid of the law. Matthew 5, 17, don't think I've come to abolish the law. Okay? And yet the apostle Paul uh, on the other hand, says, you know, I died to the law. I'm such a champion of grace that I've died to the law. And so the law and grace, and you can see why people have different ideas about this. And so I just wanted to invite you to think with me about this this morning. Um, we don't only have just the Ten Commandments, but 
when we talk about the law, we're really talking about the first five books of the Bible, right? Moses wrote the five, first five books of the Bible, and that's considered the law of Moses. And so in addition to like the Ten Commandments, we also have laws about worship. We have laws about the priesthood. We have laws about sacrifices, about food, about cleansing, about building a worship center, about conducting a war, about establishing a calendar and setting special celebrations, as well as all through those first five books, we have all kinds of case law, which sets precedent for specific kinds of things that happen in life. So we've got all of this law, if you will, for the first five books of the Bible. And um, then we have, in the New Testament, grace. And Jesus comes in the New Testament, and um, Jesus goes even further than we normally think in the law. And Jesus says, listen, you know, the real intent of God giving those laws was not to establish external boundaries but it was really to create an attitude in your heart. All right? You remember Jesus says things like this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, look, you've heard that it's been said you shouldn't kill anybody. You shouldn't murder. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief like, whoa, I haven't killed anybody. Then Jesus says, um, but I say to you that everybody who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you're an idiot is liable for hell. And Jesus is like, yeah, it says don't murder. But what God really meant is that you would have the attitude toward other people that God has. That you would see other people through God's eyes. That you would treat other people the way God treats you. See, and you would value people because they're creations of God and they're people that Christ died for and so on. And so all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the scope of the law gets way past just external boundaries. And all of a sudden, God is like messing with our hearts and, and wants us to understand that, you know, when you were made, you were made in the likeness of God. And what God wants is for you to be like him. You were made in the image of God. And God's intent is that we would be that image, that we would reflect that God to our world. And so Jesus then broadens out, you know, uh, way past behavioral boundaries to go after heart attitudes. And so on the one hand, we have all of these laws from God. On the other hand, we have Jesus bringing us grace or undeserved favor. And there's a huge difference, right, between grace and law. And um, when we think about this, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, talks about it. Again, th there's all different places in the scriptures where uh, I think, you know, uh, we can be very alert to this. But in Romans uh, chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul puts it like this. He says, sin will no longer have dominion over us because we're not under the law, but under grace. Sin is not going to have the last word on us. Sin is not going to be the major influence in our lives because we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. What does Paul mean? Is Paul saying that really standards of righteousness don't matter anymore? That it really doesn't matter how you live because grace will just cover it and wipe it all out and we won't have to worry about it? No, not at all. There's a role for the law, but it's different than it was. And it's different than what most people think. And so um, Paul is not saying that uh, righteousness doesn't matter. What he is saying is that the whole Old Testament system of law was never intended to be a means of securing a permanent relationship with God. The whole Old Testament system of law was never given to provide salvation. It was given to provide a, a, an awareness of the truth about who we are and our need for a savior and drive us to Christ. It's given like a tutor to teach us the truth about our own nature and so on. It was never a means of permanent salvation or a secure relationship with God, but to lead us to grace and a grace system that does provide a permanent salvation. Once Jesus came to be the believer's new priest, the whole system um, had to change. 
Now I'm going to read for you a um, passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 7. There's a whole section in here uh, in Hebrews about how Christ is better than the whole Old Testament law and so forth. I'm just going to read a section. Um, verse 11 of chapter 7. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. goes all the way back to Aaron, right? And the tribe of Levi, and all the priests through the Old Testament had to come from the tribe of Levi, um, all the way back to Aaron and so forth, Moses' brother. So if perfection had been attainable through that priesthood, because the law came through there, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This guy Melchizedek is a really interesting guy. He just shows up in the Old Testament with Abraham. He's from Abraham's day. And uh, nobody knows when he was born. Nobody knows what his lineage is. Nobody knows when he dies. He just shows up. He's kind of like Jesus showing up from heaven. He just all of a sudden shows up, okay? And that's who he's talking about here, Christ, right? Uh, there would be no need. If perfection could have come through the law, there'd be no need for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. When Jesus came, everything changed, okay? And um, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus comes as this new priest from a whole different line, a whole different tribe. In fact, um, look at this. This becomes more evident um, when another priest, meaning Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, in other words, from the tribe of Levi, but this priest established himself by the power of an indestructible life by the resurrection. This is a greater priest than any priest has ever been who's been established, not because he comes from some descent, but because his authority has been established by an indestructible life, a resurrection. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing and no one perfect. Okay? The law made nothing and no one perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, God, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant. Just think, you know, um, let me read a couple more. Uh, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then a couple of verses in chapter 10 as well. Verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay? Every priest, verse 11, stands daily, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he didn't keep standing. He sat down, finished, at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, those who are present tense, being sanctified. The greater sacrifice of the greater priest over the whole Old Testament system, replaced by a system of grace. So think with me, the whole Old Testament system was based on obedience, right? And was dependent upon performance. 
The whole New Testament grace system is based on a promise. And a promise is accessed only by faith. The only way you can access a promise is by believing it. The idea of law and the idea of promise are opposite ideas. If I give you something because I promise to give it to you, if I promise to give you $100 tomorrow, it's totally dependent on me. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. I've promised I'm going to give you $100 tomorrow. It's totally dependent on me. If God comes and makes a promise and says, listen, on the basis of what Jesus did, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to give you a home in heaven. The only way you can access that promise is believe him. If you don't believe him, you lose out on the promise. Okay? But if on the other hand, um, if I um, say to you something like, listen, um, God, God wants to give you um, a place in heaven, but there's these 10 laws that you have to live out first. These 10 rules for you to follow um, before you can receive it. Then all of a sudden, whether you receive anything from God is dependent on your performance, not on God's promise. And I'm going to show you in Galatians where Paul says you can't have it both ways. A promise and a law are opposite ideas. And you can't have them uh, mixed together. Um, you only can receive from, uh, a, from God a promise based on believing him. God is willing to give you a place, you know, on the basis of you believing him. Now, a key passage in all of this is in Galatians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is on this group of churches. Galatians was written not just to one church, but a whole group of churches. And uh, what had happened is that these churches started with grace. They started with the gospel. They got excited. Wow, I can be forgiven, and I can be right with God. I have a relationship with God. But then they fell back into living with their spouses and with their kids and with their friends and with their bosses uh, on the basis of law instead of on the basis of grace and on the basis of the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them, and, and there's some introduction stuff, and we get to the third chapter, and look what he says. You foolish Galatians, who tricked you? Who bewitched you? Who, who, who messed with you, right? Who bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit of God by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How'd you become a Christian? How'd you get right with God? How'd that happen? Is it because you did something right or is it because you heard and you believed? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... Are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? And so Paul is, you know, talking about the gospel. He's talking about God's grace, talking about what Jesus did when he came. And um, you'll notice that the gospel does not start with how to live. The gospel starts with something that God did for us in Jesus Christ. The gospel does not start, God's word does not start uh, with, hey, this is how you need to live. It starts with, hey, this is what was done for you. Jesus Christ was crucified. And he wasn't just crucified, he was crucified for you and for me. He was crucified. The essence of the good news is not how we're supposed to live, but what God has done for us on the cross. It's a historical event, and it's a message that something has been done for us. Something specifically, um, not in secret. Look what it says there. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The whole world knows about Christmas. The whole world knows about Good Friday. The whole world knows about it. He says, it's done publicly. Everybody's aware of what happened, the event that happened when Jesus uh, died on the cross. And it's not just that he died, but he died for you and for me. Right? And so Paul asked this question. Let me ask you just simply this. How did you receive the spirit of God? When you put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, God says the spirit of God comes into your life. You know, Jesus called it a new birth. When, when, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, 
You remember this? And there was the tree, and God said, look, you can eat from everything, but don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you will surely what? Die. Okay? What died when they ate from the tree? Did their bodies die? No. They were still alive physically. Did their souls die? Could they not think or feel or make decisions anymore? No. Their soul didn't die. You know what died? Their spirit. We're made of a body, a soul, and a spirit, and the spirit is what connects us to God. And God says, when you put your faith in Christ, God will put his spirit back in your spirit, and you will come alive. It's like being born all over again. Because all of a sudden, there's a whole new dimension to your life, a dimension that comes from relating to God. And so Paul says, when that happened to you, how did that happen? Did that happen because you obeyed some laws? You eventually attained a certain level of perfection that the God said, okay, now you're ready for my spirit? Or did that happen because you heard the message that Jesus died in your place on the cross and you believed it and God sent his spirit and animated your life? Changed everything. See? And that's what Paul's asking here in this. He said, and, and because you began by the spirit, do you really think that now you can go back to the law and gain more perfection? Instead of independence upon the spirit and instead of, uh, you know, trusting the promise of God. Um, so I think this even gets better. The next couple of verses, Paul says, hey, you ever hear of Abraham? <laughs> uh, Abraham, you know, was 430 years before Moses came with the law. So before the law came, there was Abraham. And God established um, his relationship with Abraham on the basis of a promise. Uh, let me read a couple more verses here. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, all of us, by faith preached the gospel... Before to Abraham. Preached the gospel. The good news was preached to Abraham 430 years before the law ever came into existence. Before there were the Ten Commandments, there was a promise by God. If you read Genesis chapter 12, you'll see God came to Abraham, made some promises, said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and out of that nation is going to come a divinely oriented person, meaning Jesus, and through Jesus, all the ethne or all the nations all the people groups of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to do it, God said. It's my promise. And uh, so uh, Paul is calling people to think about Abraham, and God spoke to Abraham. Abraham believed God. And, uh, you know, when, when God said that to Abraham, he didn't have a kid. His wife was barren. And God's like, you're going to be a whole nation of people, and out of that's going to come a blessing for the whole world. And you know what? He believed God. And notice what it says here. Um, Abraham believed God, verse 6, and it was counted. It was accredited. It was uh, declared as righteousness. Abraham was not a righteous person. You can read about his past. You can read about decisions he made that went against and broke God's laws. You can read all kinds of things about Abraham. He was a person just like us. Okay? But he chose to believe God when God spoke. And because he believed God, God credited that as righteousness to his account. Abraham wasn't righteous, but God credited him with righteousness. And that's the gospel. And that's the good news. And that's what God did for us in Christ. And because he believed God, because of his faith, God treated him as if he was righteous. And again, it doesn't say that his, you know, faith was a righteous act or anything like that. It's that God chose to credit him. And I would tell you, this is the opposite of all traditional religion. It's the opposite of all traditional. All traditional religion is about me earning my way with God. Okay? All traditional religion is like that. This is the opposite. This is God saying, because you trust me and take me at my word... It's possible to be loved by God and accepted by God while we're still marked by sin and uh, less than perfect. And so know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel before to Abraham. 
okay? In you shall all the nations be blessed. Um, can I just tell you, law does not have the power to change your life. You pick a law, right? And you try to obey it, and you try harder and harder and harder. The law does not come with the power to change your heart. The gospel has the power to change your heart. The gospel comes with the power of the Spirit of God animating us, changing our hearts. The law does not have the power. And that's why salvation doesn't come by the law, and that's why getting right with God doesn't come through the law. The law doesn't have the power to change our hearts. Now, the Bible says here that Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness for simply believing God. Now, it doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. It says that Abraham believed God. Now, you have to believe in God to believe God. But because you believe in God doesn't mean you believe God. You with me? Let me say it again, okay? In order to believe God, you have to believe in God. But just because you believe in God doesn't mean you believe God. If you want to be right with God, you have to believe God. When God speaks, you trust his word, right? And that's what Abraham did. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and he didn't even have a child. But he believed God. He just, and you know, some of the things God asks us to believe are just as incredible. When God comes to you and asks you to believe him, you know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It doesn't, you know, square with reality. You know, every once in a while, uh, I'll preach a sermon and somebody says, well, you got to get with reality, pal. You know, and um, sometimes I think oh, poor old uh, Abraham must have said, well, I'm going to believe you, but it doesn't square with my reality. Being right with God requires that we believe him. And it makes us dependent upon his um, uh, gift to us, his promise to us, not our performance. And it's humbling. It's humbling. That's why pride is like the biggest sin in the world because it gets in the way of being humbled and being dependent upon God and the promises that God made, right? And so it's a promise that's entirely dependent upon God. Now, again, the way most people, a good person, right with God is on the basis of performance. Most people think that they're good, a good person and that by doing the works of the law, they're going to impress God and he's going to be pleased with them. I want to just show you this in verse 10. Listen to this. Um, for all who rely on being good people, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You're making a big deal about doing everything right? I got news for you. If you think that that's the basis on which you can relate to God, you're under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everybody who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You're under a curse if you think that way. Go back to verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. But those who are trying to be good people and live by the works of the law are under a curse. I think there's two parts to the curse. First of all, notice what it says. It says, cursed is everybody who doesn't abide by all things in the law. You might, um, you might think of the law. Um, I, somebody went through the first five books of Moses uh, and, and discovered there are like five, I believe, 530 different laws, okay, that are contained in the first five books of Moses. So imagine if the law was like a chain, okay, and God's got the chain at the top, and there's 530 different laws in the chain, and you're hanging on the bottom over the flames of hell, okay? How many links in the chain have to break before you're toast? Just one. You're under a curse. Because even if you keep 529 and you blow it on one, you're toast. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, for all who are relying on the works of the law and doing everything right are under a curse. Why? Well, because it's written, if you're going to live like that, you have to abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And guess what? Nobody can do it. Nobody. No matter who you are. The only person who's ever been able to do that is Jesus. Um, nobody can do that. The second part of uh, the reason that I think we're cursed, uh, if we try to live like that, uh, is that um, psychologically, psychologically, the anxiety levels, the insecurity levels, 
the depression levels go way up because guess what? What I constantly know is I haven't lived up to the standards that God has set. And so I live with this kind of low-grade anxiety until something else happens, and then it steps it up a notch, and then it steps it up a notch, and I try, and I try harder, and then I get depressed. I give up. I just can't do it. And so the psychological uh, anxiety of this whole thing, uh, and not only that, you know, like, like again, like Jesus says, look, well, it says don't murder. Well, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, yeah, but if you hate people and you call them names, and who doesn't hate, who doesn't get angry? at people. Who can live like that? And so the anxiety and the stress levels and so forth uh, go up and up. And I think more and more we see it in our own uh, culture. Uh, I always think that people who are trying to impress God with their performance are always oversensitive to criticism as well. Have you ever, you know, just somebody says, you know, be honest with me. Tell me what you think. And so you tell them and then they don't talk to you forever. (laughs) Why is that? Well, because they're trying to be, you know, uh, accepted by God on the basis of their performance, and you're telling them they're coming up short. They don't want to hear it. So they're overly sensitive to criticism. How do you react to criticism? When your spouse comes and, you know, lays you out for something, you're like, oh, thank you, dear. You're right. I'm wrong. Is that how we normally react, you see? And so when we're trying to impress God, we're oversensitive to criticism. We're envious of other people who do it better. We're intimidated by other people who seem to have it together and we don't and so forth. And, or if you don't do that, then you fill up with pride like the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees? Jesus, the, the worst things Jesus said were against the Pharisees. He said, you're so concerned about the outside, right? You're like a dead, a whitewashed tomb, dead on the inside and all cleaned up on the outside. And, and, you can't, nobody gets along with God on that basis. Uh, as you'll see, the scriptures say loud and clear. Um, and so, uh, look, we're under a curse if, if you try to live like that. Look, verse 11, it's evident, it should be evident to everybody that nobody is justified before God on the basis of the law. Nobody. I think that includes everybody. Nobody. Nobody's ever, and it should be evident. Why are we defending that? Why would we do that? It should be very evident that nobody can live. We're not God. God made us to be like him, and we're not. We've fallen short. And so we live under a curse when we try to live like that. And look at this. The righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith. Now, the law, verse 12, the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. See, promise and law are two different ideas. Again, if if God makes a promise to us and we believe him, like God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham believed him, and God credited that as righteousness. And God makes a promise to us that if you'll put your faith in Christ and let him go to the cross in your place, and take your sin and give you his righteousness, I promise you, God says, you and I will be tight for all of eternity. And if you choose to believe it, it'll change your life. The only way you can miss out on a promise is to not believe it. Right? It's the only way you can miss out on a promise that comes from God, a trustworthy source. If God makes a promise, the only way you can miss out on it is not believe it. And that's why God was so impressed with Abraham that he believed him and um, God credited him uh, with righteousness. Now, how do you get rid of the curse? If you're trying to be a good person, and again, I say 90% of people and a lot of people who profess to be Christians are all bundled up in this, uh, you know, trying to live by the law type of thing. And that's who Paul's writing to here in Galatians, this group of churches. Look what he says. The law is not of faith. You can't have it both ways. Okay? Rather, the one who does them will have to live by them. Now, verse 13. How do you get rid of the curse? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. If you go all the way back to Moses, to Deuteronomy chapter 21. um, Let me just read a couple of verses here. Deuteronomy chapter way back in the Old Testament when Moses was still alive. 
Um, if a man committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. Okay? And his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So in the Old Testament, if you committed a capital crime and got capital punishment for it, most, most all of the um, case laws in, in the first five books of Moses, you were killed by stoning. And then they would take your body and hang it on a tree, which symbolized rejection by God. Okay? And again, this is all leading up to Christ, who became a curse for us in our place, right? And took upon himself the punishment uh, for all of the broken laws that we've uh, committed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming, by becoming a curse for us. Um, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says the same thing. He says, for two things happened on the cross. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Two things happened on the cross. First of all, our sin went there and Christ became our sin and he took the curse and died in our place. Second thing that happened, his righteousness was credited to our account. So that when God looks at us today, he sees us as righteous. Now, that's hard to believe because we know we're not righteous. We're no more righteous than Abraham was. But God, when we believe him, credits, that's the gospel. That's the gift of a relationship with God that's secure. That's the gift of eternal salvation. When we believe God, he credits it to us as righteousness, as if we were as righteous as Jesus Christ. That exchange happened on the cross, and that's what enables God to declare us righteous on the basis of faith and faith alone. Faith alone. And so, I mean, this is, this is good news, isn't it? I mean, are you tracking with that? I try to make this simple, but I know it's really hard to track, right? So now um, Paul gives an example. He says out of just human, normal human life, he says, look, the gospel was preached to Abraham before the law ever came. And when the law came, it does not nullify the gospel that was set up first, 430 years earlier. Okay? Um, look what he says, verse 10. Uh, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. I'm sorry. Um, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant. Let's take, let's take a man-made contract. or a, a, I think he's talking about a will. Let's imagine that you make a will. Okay? And uh, even with a man-made covenant or a will, nobody can annul it or add to it once it's been ratified. Is that true? If you make a will and circumstances change, can you change the will? No, right? I see you haven't made a will. <laughs> Here's the deal. Like, uh, let's say I have two friends, and one's wealthy and one's not. And so uh, I decide that I'm going to leave whatever money is left. I'm going to give most of it. I'm going to give 80% of it to my poor friend because my wealthy friend doesn't need it. So then I die, and the next day my wealthy friend loses all his money. Does that change the will? Not if it's written like that, right? You can't. So that's what God is saying. Listen, I made a deal with Abraham, and no matter what the circumstances are, I'm not going to change it because I made it on the basis of a promise. And I'm God, and I keep my promises. And it doesn't negate it just because the law came into play 430 years later. That's what he's saying here. Now, the promises, verse 16, were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. Other places in the Bible make a big deal about this, that it wasn't to offsprings, all a bunch of people, but to offspring, meaning primarily Jesus Christ. Okay, the prime... Um, the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God 
so as to make the promise void. Can I tell you, it was always on the basis of the gospel that anybody could be related to God. That's the way it always was, and it's never changed. And the New Testament is simply fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you're familiar with the passages back in Genesis, God made these promises to Abraham in chapter 12, and in chapter 15, God ratified, or if you will, signed the contract with Abraham. You might remember he split a bunch of animals and walked through the middle, and you remember only God walked through the middle, not Abraham. Abraham was asleep, symbolizing the fact that this is based on a promise, not on some covenant or contract. Because God determined, this is what I'm going to do. I promise you, I'm going to send somebody who's going to be a blessing to all the ethne of the world, including all of us. And that's what he did. And that's the only basis on which you can be rightly related to God in a secure relationship that will last for all of eternity. Now, here's verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by a law, this is why you can't have it both ways. It is no longer by a promise. This is what Paul is saying to these crazy Galatian people. He's saying, man, you started with such a gift from God, an inheritance based on faith given by grace through Jesus Christ, something that got started with Abraham thousands of years ago. And now you're falling back into trying to relate to God and other people on the basis of the law? Instead of what's wrong with you people? How did your spirit come into your life? Did it come through following some group of laws or did it come from hearing the truth of the gospel and what happens to the purity of the gospel when you pollute it with an effort on, that's man-made instead of all coming from God and so verse 18 if the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by a promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise and it was never nulled you know it was never voided so then here's the big question why then the law if God gave the gospel to Abraham and the gospel is the only way and the New Testament is a fulfillment and Jesus is a fulfillment of the gospel and so forth, then why did the law come? Here you go. It was added because of transgressions, because of sin. You know why the law was given? So that you could get a true picture of yourself. I don't know how long it's been for you, but to just sit down and take the Ten Commandments and go through them and think about the intent that Jesus said is behind each one of those commands that it's a hard attitude that God is after, that God wants us to be like him, I bet I could sit with you and if you were honest with me, I could show you how you've broken all 10 of those commandments. That's why nobody ever makes it. By keeping the law. That's why the gospel is such good news. And how tragic is it that you and I, we sit on the good news of the gospel and all around us, 90% of the people think they're going to get into heaven on the basis of being good and they're under a curse and they don't even know it. And God has given us the job to enlighten people and to help them. And one of the ways to do that is just to take these 10 commandments and, and go through them. Well, why did the law come? Well, it was added because of the sins until the offspring could come to whom the promise had been made. It was like a guardian. It was like a tutor to lead us to Christ. It was put in place like temporarily in order to try to stem the tide of sin. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary, meaning Moses. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Wow, what a difference between the law and the promise. I think we can easily kind of show the purpose of the law. In Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul gives a personal example. He says, my life was full of coveting. I didn't like my life. I wanted what everybody else had. I wanted what everybody else was. But I didn't even know that coveting was wrong, Paul says. I thought it was just a normal way of living. I mean, don't you watch TV and look at the advertisements? It's like, I want that. I need that car. You know? Paul says, uh, verse 7, what shall we say, that the law is sin? Of course not. Uh, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This is the Apostle Paul. If I didn't read the Ten Commandments, I would have not known that, you know, being angry at my brother is, 
you know, the, not looking at people through God's eyes and seeing people the way God does and, and all of that, that I, I'd have never known that that was like a, a, a sin that's worthy of judgment. You know, that I'm just putting down other people for their stuff and trying to live by the law with them and so forth. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known that I was sinning. I would not have known what, what, what it is to covet. If the law didn't say, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Why'd the law come? Why'd God give the Ten Commandments? So you could know how alive sin is in your life. That's what God is saying here, right? Why did it come? So that you could know how bad you are and how much you need a Savior. So that you could turn and find help in the person of Christ who uh, was you know, in mind since the beginning of time. Sin, seizing, and uh, the opportunity produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. I thought I was doing pretty good. But when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. This is Paul talking. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. But the result is death. That's what I said, right? The law does not have the power to give life. The gospel brings life because the spirit of God comes with the gospel and animates us with a new life. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what's good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions, Paul says. For I, I, I do not do what I want to do, and I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, and so on and so forth. And Paul gets into this whole thing about, you know, this struggle of sin that's resident in my life. And so... What's the, purpose of, um, what's the purpose of the law? It's to help us understand our true condition. It's to help us see ourselves as God sees us. And to drive us to Christ, who came as our Savior, and who came to take the curse away from us. It's a gift beyond description. It's eternity that hangs in the balance. And it's a gift, and it's a promise that God makes. And you can only access a promise by believing it. How do you access a promise? You believe it. That's it. And when you do that, God knows it, and God credits it as righteousness. So the law is given to drive us to Christ. The law shows us that we're not righteous, and that it does, yet it doesn't have the power to make us righteous. And so um, Galatians goes on and says, look, you know, we're, the, the end result of this taking away the curse, let me read it. Uh, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You know, the ultimate goal of salvation is we become the children of God. Now, I know some people might be offended because it says we are all sons of faith. And it should say sons and daughters and we're gender specific and all of that. But the truth is, back in that day, you couldn't inherit something if you were a daughter. You could only inherit things if you were a son. And so when Paul says we are all sons of God, he's saying we all, male and female, begin to inherit the promises of God. He's actually raising women to that status so that we might all have this inheritance that started with Abraham thousands of years ago that God is still being faithful to today. This promise that started, that's the basis of the gospel, the opposite of all traditional religion. And so the law is given, the law is our tutor bringing us to Christ. But now that we're in Christ, uh, we no longer look at the law as a means to salvation or a means to a secure relationship with God, right? It's simply a revelation of the character of God, of what he's really like, of the holiness of God. And no longer uh, are we uh, coerced by the law to obey it because Christ took the curse from us and he satisfied the law. Now the law becomes something we desire. 
The law becomes something that the Spirit of God brings to life in us, and we say, this is our God, and we want to be like him. That's what we were made for. This is uh, how Jesus lived, and he's our hero, and we want to be like him. And so the law fulfills this purpose of helping us understand how is it that I can express my love and desire for Christ. And part of it is by taking that law and seeking to live that way, not by coercion, but by thanksgiving and by gratitude for what God has done for me in Christ, that he's my hero and I want to be like him and that the spirit will animate me in that direction. What a great God we have. What a great gospel we sit on and how desperate our world is to know, listen, you're under a curse and you don't even know it. And what an opportunity for us to be the light in the midst of the darkness for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I don't know why it is, but it just seems to me like, you know, we're so quick to jump back into the law. And especially when we deal with each other and uh, the way we think about uh, things, the way we uh, believe you are as a father. And I pray, Father, that you would open up our hearts by your spirit to see the truth about you. Yes, you are holy. You are righteous. You do everything right. You're our standard for what's right and what's wrong. But Father, we confess before you that you know, we're made out of dirt and we're the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and it's impossible for us uh, to be the people, Father, that you originally created us to be. We're fallen. But Father, we're so thankful for Jesus who came and took the curse away from us so that we could be free and so that we could begin to approach Father, uh, the likeness of Christ, that we know it's your desire to sanctify us, uh, to get us ready to live in heaven where everybody will live like this, by grace. Where everybody will understand that that's the way you relate to us and that's the way you drew us to yourself and that's the way we're to relate to each other. And what a glorious day that's going to be. But in the meantime, help us to cooperate with you. Help us to yield to your spirit, Father, and not fall back into works of the flesh. And not be caught up, Father, uh, and distracted uh, by a lesser uh, kind of uh, false truth. Help us, Father, instead to embrace the good news with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. amen.